Okay, good morning and welcome to a, another new Energy Chinwag. Uh, this will probably be our last one for 2019. So what we thought we would do is just have a bit of a review and each of us were going to select three things from the year that we thought were, were significant. Um, there are obviously many things that are significant, so I'm sure many of you will, will disagree. But anyway, we'll, we'll come up with our, our three uh, probably a bit more kind of UK focused, but some of them were relevant to a more a more global audience as well. Um, yeah, and see what you think. And by all means, contact with some other ones as well if you disagree. Um, Charlie, do you want to kick off with one of your three? Yeah, good uh, good morning, uh, everybody. Good morning or good day to you. Um, the first one, uh, John, that I thought of uh, would make a, a useful uh, start is the uh, offshore wind sector deal. Uh, we've obviously been uh, involved in various conferences and meetings over the years as this has been uh, discussed. But uh, curiously, the uh, signing of the deal was a bit of a, it was a bit overshadowed by political uh, events in the UK this year. Um, obviously, the initial deadline for leaving uh, uh, the EU was, uh, was, was, I think, on the uh, 31st of March. And that was round about the time uh, that the sector deal was finally signed. It was uh, promoted by uh, Greg Clark of Bayes and uh, the Energy Minister uh, at the time, Claire Perry. And it got across the line, which is, so it's got the signature and sign off, uh, so uh, it's now there. Uh, and basically the sector deal uh, says that uh, the UK has uh, world leadership in uh, offshore wind, uh, but um, there, there, it's got the um, possibility to, uh, to expand much, much further and become a global a global leader and maintain that global leadership position and use its existing um, generation and operational capabilities and development capabilities to uh, to make a quantum leap. So it says a few things really. It says that um, the government will continue to support offshore wind. Uh, I think your, one of your three points might cover that in a bit more detail. But um, uh, as part of the government support, it wants a few things in return. And uh, one of the things it wants is uh, is local content. So it doesn't want uh, to support an industry and then find that the uh, the money, which is considerable, uh, is then uh, spent uh, on kit uh, and, and um, uh, elements of the infrastructure brought in from other countries when, where there's no need to. And the other thing really um, is that it wants local jobs. So it wants um, communities which host offshore wind farms, the, uh, the operations bases, the maintenance bases, the helicopter, the CTVs, all of these things. It wants uh, the, the jobs to be as local as possible. So it's enshrined. So there is a, a raising of the local content uh, level within projects, and I think it's up to 60% now, so they're more than half. And if you're thinking that uh, offshore wind uh, comes in perhaps about uh, three billion pounds per installed megawatt, perhaps slightly less now, but significant figures, and if you think that 60% of that is going to be uh, effectively spent uh, locally, uh, then you can see the attraction for uh, the supply chain and companies and communities hosting uh, the offshore offshore uh, wind farms. So that is the, the sector deal in, in a nutshell. So do you think, um, in terms of the significance of it, you've mentioned local content. Is that the main thing that's change you think because of the sector deal i mean yeah, that's been, that's been increased in a sector deal i guess what would have what would have not happened that will happen as a result well, of it well, previously things like sector deals have been shied away from the uh, they went out of fashion uh, along with things like industrial strategies and this kind of uh, top-down 
uh, like approach, but they, they've come back as, as, as other countries, even in the EU, where there's a whole heap of anti-competition regulations. But even then, companies, countries in reality do protect their own interests. So uh, we on the development side were always a bit cynical. It was always said, look, if you get 70% uh, of a project uh, done locally, uh, you're going to increase your chances of a consent. And lo and behold, the uh, turbine element uh, tends to come in round about that figure. Now, the UK is slightly lower than that. Um, obviously, we don't have a UK turbine manufacturer, not end-to-end, although companies might relocate from other countries uh, and then employ a UK uh, workforce. Uh, obviously, you're thinking of Siemens, Hull and, and, and so forth. Uh, but the, the, the significance of it is that it's now codified. It is, um, it's something that's codified even at submission of an EIA. So even at consenting stage, the developers have to show how they've uh, sought to source it locally, what they've done to engage, what they've done to engage with the supply chain. Particularly small and medium enterprises, the, the backbone of the economy, often forgotten by big six utilities. Uh, utilities like to deal with similar entities to themselves. Uh, traditionally, have not really bothered to, uh, to talk with smaller SMEs that they might be more at risk of, uh, of, of not fulfilling contracts. So, and so there's real, a real significance in the fact that they're now, by, by um, definition, they've got to reach out to SMEs and the supply chain and, and register and show it. So it's part of the submission now, even at consent, before you get your stamp to say this is a, a recognised uh, uh, kind of uh, planning application. You've got to show who you've met with, where, shows the documentation, shows the, uh, the, 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 the kind of outcomes, shows how this is now being put in your procurement strategy. Uh, if you don't do that, you ain't even going to get a stamp to say that you've been registered as a, as a planning application. So they've got to reverse the policy into a very early stage of, of the project lifecycle, really, which isn't something that they're used to. So it is significant in that it's, uh, it's causing changes to the way even developments are carried out for offshore wind in the UK. Yeah, and I guess I guess the other, aside from the details, it's kind of, it, it, it's the, the fact it's a deal between industry and the government. So it's kind of, there's a negotiation that's happened, there's been some to and fro, and it's it's kind of I guess it's getting away from this idea that industry just kind of gets something from the government in terms of subsidy or regulatory framework that's favourable or whatever, and then goes ahead and makes money. It's I guess the way I, I sort of see it as a change is it's the government saying, well, hang on a minute, that's all very well, you're you're doing quite nicely out of it, but what's in it for us? <laughs> so yeah. it's it's this idea that if if a government is going to support a project um it wants something back for it uh, not yeah. necessarily something back monetarily but um something back in terms of well i suppose it is all monetarily ultimately but in terms of as you say economic development uh job creation um all that kind of stuff and it's this kind of thing that's been happening in other other countries um plenty of developing markets have quite big local content rules associated with auctions and so on so um it's just yeah it's, it's it, i guess it's that principle really it's that yeah. Um, if you're going to be, if we're going to give you a hand, and we're going to do um, offer opportunities, um, then it's it's not a one-way street. We, as a as a policymaker, as a government, we we want something back. Yeah, it's quite a big deal. There were hundreds of uh, of sectors wanted a sector deal. They're quite sought after. I think that was whittled down to about uh, thirty. And one of the things they looked at was scalability. There's no point having a sector deal if it's just uh, a niche. But it was considered mm. a success. Uh, uh, story 
And uh, as it's gone through, in fact, uh, one, one significant uh, element of the sector deal is it's quite fluid. Now, the original sector deal said that uh, we want offshore wind to, uh, to treble, which is an eye-wateringly ambitious uh, target within a decade. Uh, but they've made it even more uh, kind of ambitious by even the most conservative, with a small and a big C, of the, uh, of the political parties has said, well, actually, it's no longer ambitious enough. Uh, so Boris Johnson came out uh, on, the, on the stump with a figure of 40 gigawatts by uh, uh, that is in production uh, uh, by uh, 2030. And uh, I think one of the challenges to the industry is how can we meet such an ambitious timeline? And that is the most conservative one of the uh, of the major political parties. So the sector deal is even more ambitious now at December 2019 than it was when it was first unveiled as recently as uh, as March. Uh, and and it's, so, so it's, it's it's in place. It's a sign of a two-way process. It seems to have all party uh, support and is enshrined in, in law. Okay. And um, I guess just briefly, aside from local content rules, are there any are there any other things that kind of leap out that industries yeah, have yeah. to do? Uh, yeah, there's quite a bit about innovation in uh, in there and uh, clustering. This concept of uh, of clustering, whereby you don't spread your your jam too thinly. But you say, well, hold on, let's look at Humberside, for example, and say, well, we've got Siemens in Hull, we've got Aura, which is like an academic body, we've got the university, we've got IX, who's a, a, a vessel chartering body attached to the university, which I've chartered vessels from in the, uh, in the past at Grimsby. We've had a big regeneration of the old fish dock. You can go around and the, the fish dock is now transformed into uh, big O&M bases to get the SOV vessels in there. Ultimately, they'll be looking to build these vessels, I'm sure, in the in, in the UK. And suddenly the cluster has gained uh, enough kind of heft as a unit to drive down cost, which is also enshrined in the sector deal. Uh, it's been successful, but it can go even, even more successful by clustering, innovation, supply chain engagement at an early stage, which is also something new, and then uh, a two-way process uh, between big developers and SMEs, and that's not always been easy in the past. It's, it's, it's some, some of the, SA, the, the SMEs found it hard in the past. If you want to talk to Eon, how do you do it? Who do you talk to? Oh, somebody sent me a web page. Well, what, it takes ages to assemble all the documentation, all the ISO, the quality control, the health and safety. So it's a big, big commitment to engage. But uh, if the prize is there, and I think people are starting to see that a quadrupling of generational capacity within a decade might represent that, then it is perhaps worth uh, worth doing. And there's, there's organisations uh, like Quangos uh, that are easing the pain and helping and guiding people. Obviously, uh, I do as an individual. I help uh, people along. If somebody says, how do I talk to this? How do I talk to that? It's something that I do as uh, as well, being engaged in the, in the industry. But it's a sign of a two-way process. Uh, well, one between government and, and, the, and the big six and, and other developers, and also the developers and the local communities uh, through effective engagement. Okay, um, you mentioned driving down costs. It probably kind of leads into one of my three um, events or things of significance during the year, which was in September. Um, there was the latest what we call contracts for difference auction results here in the UK. Um, and the notable thing about those, or there were a few things in there, but the most notable thing, the thing that got all the headlines was was cost reduction, particularly for offshore wind. So uh, we've got a bunch of offshore wind projects due to come online anywhere from kind of 2023, 20, 24 to the 24, 25 timeframe. 
coming in at costs around about £40 per megawatt hour. There were a few at kind of £39.7 per megawatt hour and a few at um, £41.6 per megawatt hour, but around the £40 per megawatt hour price range, which, as many observers pointed out, is actually lower than the um, average wholesale price these days. So the, the big headline with those was we've got projects which are being given a guaranteed what they call strike price which is lower than the market price so so these are going to be unsubsidized projects and in fact an actual fact if the um if the market price stays as it is now um there are projects that will actually end up paying money back into into the system and um, paying consumers back rather than being subsidized so so that was that was a round three was a big big um, announcement in terms of this idea of a move, getting getting to a position where renewables and particularly offshore wind, which was always seen as like the most expensive, um, difficult to build renewable, actually getting to a stage where not only do you not need subsidy, um, you still need some supports and some help with planning and licensing and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of direct payments to top up the price, not only do you no longer need them, but potentially you're even in a situation where projects are actually paying money back into the system because their price is lower than the um, than the wholesale price. So yeah, a, that, that was certainly one of the highlights, I would say, of the year. It seems a remarkable uh, state of affairs. I was with uh, a big six utility not so long ago where we were faced with a challenge uh, which we thought was uh, unattain uh, unattainable of getting the price uh, to £100 a megawatt hour. And now you're saying that it's gone from that, it's gone down to 60 and now it's gone down to 40 And so effectively, this holy grail, if you like, because the industry doesn't particularly like special pleading or, 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 or kind of subsidy. It's, it's a commercial um, market here in the UK. Uh, but it's done it. Uh, and from what you're saying, there, there are even occasions where, the, I mean, I think one of uh, the, the, the political drivers of this was that the cost of electricity were becoming unacceptable to the consumer. It was becoming a political issue and a party political issue. And uh, from, from what you're saying, uh, that, that seems to have been more or less nailed. Is, is, is that that right? Well, as, as I say, I mean, the, the certainly the you're, you've kind of got to compare future prices <laughs> with current prices. So these the strike prices are, as I say, for projects coming online in the kind of 2024, 20, 25 timeframe. Um, so there are the government does projections of what wholesale prices will be at that point, um, and their projections are are that they will be they will be larger than that. So so yeah, the <clears throat> the significance of this kind of price is that you can start to say to the public look these things are not <clears throat> things that are being paid subsidies out of your electricity bills they're they're actually if they're subsidy free and in actual fact in in some cases they may end up paying money back to your electricity bill so it, in terms of a mindset change regardless of the the specific figures in terms i think of a mindset change and a kind of shift from it's it's this it's the kind of significance of this shift away from an industry that's seen as having to have money thrown at it in order to um, survive to being one where actually, from a price point of view, uh, wholesale energy price point of view, it, it can compete perfectly happily with uh, what's happening on the market. Now, again, there are some caveats around that in terms of um, still needing support um, for things like, as I say, licensing, leasing, 
grid issues um the fact that you get a that you've got this price guaranteed for 15 years so you're not just playing on with market price anyway so it's a it's a fixed price at least but that certainly that mindset shift is important yeah. i think to go back to your it also ties in a little bit in with your sector deal because yeah. um, some of the concerns that have been raised with such low prices are how that's going to how that's going to be achieved um, and one of the concerns is the way that will be achieved is by squeezing suppliers so i think i think there's some disquiet in parts of the supply chain as to whether these how these strike prices are going to be achieved um yeah. and whether whether it's them that's going to take the hit um yeah. so so yeah it's depends who you are if you're if you're an energy buyer then the price is being lower great um if you're a supplier into the project then i guess you could look at it and be a bit concerned about um your next conversation with the developer and whether they're yeah. going to bash yeah. you down on yeah on the, yeah well i've done enough of that in my time a couple of things that might want to tease out and see whether this is correct but as i understand that it's a bit of a pot and so if uh, people are coming in with uh, with low low prices i would imagine that the pot goes much much further and you get more projects away is, is that logical and obviously if you're going to yeah, well, the way you, <laughs> you're going to industry in 10 years yeah the way cfdos used to work is that um the strike price the guaranteed price uh, well, generally, people were bidding a price higher than what the government thought the underlying wholesale price was going to be. And so the difference was what they were going to be paid in subsidy. And so depending on how big a difference there was and how much subsidy was going to be paid, the, the number of projects was limited not by um, megawatts. It was limited by those subsidies adding up to a, a pot amount. So whatever it was, 700 million pounds a year or something. Um and so, yeah, they could they could increase capacity until the, the amount of subsidy paid reached that um, projected limit. Now, obviously, in the current situation with round three, um, they're not paying subsidy at all. So, in that can, in that sense, there's not a pot of subsidy to be exceeded. Um, in fact, there's ideally there's going to be a pot of money that will be paid back. So, in that case, the capacity the limits on how much subsidy being paid are not really the issue. Um, so, I guess the the limits on how many projects have been awarded and so on was was number of bidders licenses available uh what have you um but yeah i mean in, i guess in theory if you're not paying a subsidy you can you can very quickly increase the amount of capacity uh, that's going to be built because you've removed one of the limits which was the pot of subsidy available because you're no longer no longer paying them out so so yeah that in terms of achieving that massive growth to 40 gigawatts um being a, a subsidy free in a subsidy free situation certainly makes a difference it's yeah, one it's... one limitation that disappears on on capacity yeah a couple of other hidden nuances that might be worth teasing out uh, even even when you spend the money uh, obviously the, the landowner is or the seabed owner is actually the crown estate which is mm. uh, uh, actually paying it back to the state or the back to the queen's uh, crown estate uh, through that so the money actually is coming back as it is through the local content rules as well so yes you're spending the money you've got rid of the subsidy uh, but a lot of it comes back to the wider uk plc uh, coffers uh, in some form which is good news for the treasury and obviously you can see now why the why the price falls and the sector deal do indeed offer many synergies uh, between between themselves yeah uh, what, absolutely. What, else, what, what else would you like to uh, to well just before i finish on that one it's worth yeah. pointing out because offshore wind got all the headlines um yeah. there were also there's also four projects which are what they call remote island wind um yeah. so they in the uk onshore wind really is has not been allowed to bid in for these um 
contract for difference contracts at all for the last several years, um, which is lots of controversy about because it would certainly be be cheap. Um, but island, onshore wind on islands, remote islands, which basically is um, up in Scotland, uh, have been they've been allowed they were allowed to compete for CFD. So there were there were four projects on remote islands that qualified, and there's also a couple of projects that. They call themselves advanced conversion technologies, which is basically bio biopower projects. Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to look into what the advanced conversion technologies were, some kind of gasification or something, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just to make that note that offshore wind, all the headlines um, because yeah. of the low prices. But um, there are there are some other renewable power projects that are included in that same allocation around three results. Um, okay, so that's another. I guess moving away from offshore wind, um, offshore wind is obviously a big thing in the UK. Um, but the other thing I think was significant this year uh, and will make a big difference going forwards um, was in June, the UK signed into law its net zero target um, for whatever it is, 2050, 2045. Um, now, it's kind of it's one of those things that on the one hand you can be quite you could be a bit cynical about it and say well it's easy for a government to sign something into law when the target is appears way way beyond when they've retired um and probably are not going to be on the hook for it um but i think there's still there's still a significance about turning it from a kind of vague aspiration to something that actually has a, a legal framework and a legal significance because it just it as soon as that happened it just provides more impetus it provides more confidence uh long-term confidence for long-term investment it provides it puts in these various kind of net zero um plans and all from all sorts of technologies from offshore wind growth to hydrogen projects to solar to electric vehicles i mean the whole gamut of clean energy technologies that i think there is a significance in going from something that's a kind of yeah we'd like to get lower carbon by such a date to actually having something that's a written legal document that um that commits to achieving a net zero target in a particular time frame even if that time frame's um further away than, than some people would like so i, I think that yeah, you can be cynical about it, but I think that was well, quite, I, I think quite a significant uh, milestone because it just it just gets everyone kind of heading with more yeah. confidence in a particular direction. I think I think it is important, uh, John. I think it's uh, been referred to as perhaps Theresa May's legacy that she wanted to leave something to be uh, recalled by, and that perhaps is a final uh, act for the UK. And of course, it does. Uh, things like the gas industry, things like Rio Two, that's the five yearly review of the gas network are already planning ahead. Uh, the grid, as we know, has 10-year plans, and there are not that many 10-year plans between here and 2045 or 2050. It's, uh, it sounds a long time, but for major projects, offshore winds can regularly take 10 years. Uh, and if that is now in law, it means that if you have a project and it goes through to, uh, to planning, that will be cascaded down into that. And if you certainly, if you go to appeal, it will be at the very top of the list. Does it accord with this net zero uh, legislation? If it does, you've got a greater chance of uh, of the consent. So it will start already uh, coming through to uh, to net zero. One thing I would like to add is that although that's the UK uh, kind of figure, some cities are uh, actually saying, well, actually, that's good. 
but we think it's so important. We, we're declaring a local climate emergency. There's even a parliamentary climate emergency in the UK. All of this is part of the political backdrop uh, and that we are going to be in advance of it. And so they're starting to think about now how that goes into local transportation policies, things like heat, which is uh, something that we'll discuss perhaps, well, we've already discussed it in podcasts, but it's a great part of, uh, uh, of the bigger energy mix as opposed to just electricity and what they do with things like their own council-sourced PPAs, why are they? They're talking the talk uh, regarding to be net zero leaders, but what are they doing themselves? Are the government buildings, are they leading the way? What about the universities? What about the NHS? Often forgotten. What about the land assets that they've already got? What about the leading from the front that people perhaps expect when these big announcements are, uh, are made? How does it tie into all the other things that are done uh, both locally and the UK. So uh, anything will have to be benchmarked uh, against this, and it's not far. It, it sounds 20, 30 years on the hence, and the next generation picks up the tab, but it will already start being uh, uh, kind of focusing uh, developers' minds on how to uh, how to meet it, especially with regard to heat. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd just to reiterate a couple of the points you made there, I, th I think it's important because it provides a target on which then other specific action plans can hang so you mentioned various cities um vying to kind of beat it <laughs> come up with a, a quicker target um and also particularly with with heat um it's an area where there's been lots of talk about it but not a lot of action a lot a lot of progress but by as soon as this is set into law and there's a date which looks quite a long way away but actually when you start doing the maths and working out how much um, infrastructure has to change and how much um, usage has to change. Heat is a far bigger issue, uh, far bigger challenge than decarbonising electricity. Um, and so it just it brings focus to that. And it means that some of these projects, pilot projects, um, early stage projects to look at ways to decarbonise heat um, suddenly have somewhere to go. Um, they're not sort of just kind of nice to nice to do projects that they become kind of essential parts of moving towards this, um, this future target. So see, so yeah, that's why I think it's important. It's not it's not that you can necessarily hold to account the person that signed in the target when when we come to a few decades in the future. But it's the fact that it just provides a, a focus and it provides a a better sense of purpose and sense of direction on which all these other things, all these other kind of sub-projects, sub-targets, um, and, and particularly areas where it's been difficult and there's been little progress like heat and also transport to a large extent. Um, it just provides more impetus to actually get on and not just focus on power, which has been, relatively speaking, the, the kind of easy part, um, but to focus on some of these other things as well. So, yeah. so yeah, it's 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 a kind of political statement to some extent, um, but I think it's an important one. Yeah, if you're an investor in a business and you had two options, one might be a renewable and zero underpin target and the other might be a traditional fossil based one, it will it certainly kind of inform the business decisions, certainly if you've uh, followed you know, a long, longer term strategy as to what you might do if you're looking at perhaps developing a new diesel engine or some other form of uh, traction, uh, EV or hydrogen, it might help inform that decision almost immediately. Yeah. Okay. So what was your... Yeah, the next one I've uh, thrown into our hat, uh, if you like. It's something we've discussed uh, twice already uh, this year, John, and that is uh, hydrogen. And we, we had a, another uh, podcast on hydrogen last week, extremely well received, thousands of uh, 
of, of views of that uh, when we published the uh, the associated stuff on the, on the internet. But hydrogen is a, is as we said in the podcast, a bit of a strange one, and that there's almost a, a, a an echo chamber out there of clamours, and we've seen uh, we've seen strategies, we've seen roadmaps every day. There's something new: Australia, Tasmania, the Americans, the Germans, almost on a daily basis, coming up with uh, with uh, new infrastructure projects based around hydrogen. They're each more ambition ambitious than the the, the last one, uh, and yet it's not really underpinned by a great deal on the ground. There's not many shovels going into the earth. Uh, regarding it. So our podcast indicated that it's an extremely interesting one. Hydrogen's been around for a long, long time. Uh, but why now? So why is hydrogen suddenly uh, becoming so, so important? And one of the things I, I posited, because uh, people come up with fancy phrases like sector coupling, but I said, well, perhaps it's a bit of a missing link. If you were to think of sector coupling between oil and gas and renewables, then hydrogen, which, as we said, is good for oil and gas companies. It gives them somewhere to go. And it's particularly good for uh, intermittent or variable renewables. Uh, it, it might be a good a good pathway. But we try to tease out in our podcast what is really the case. Is it just noise or is this something more uh, more tangible? Uh, any, any views on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the reasons I didn't pick hydrogen as in terms of a highlight of the year was because there wasn't a specific thing I could point to. Um, if you like, I can't, there's not an event, uh, there wasn't a specific um, outcome I could necessarily point to. It's just, it's one of those topics, though, that over the years, certainly the kind of the level of interest and the level of um, engagement and and discussion around it has certainly kind of grown dramatically from the start of the year to the to the end of the year. And I think it kind of ties in with the last one. It, it, it ties in with um people thinking okay we've got this net zero target um we've got to not just worry about what do we do with power stations but what on earth are we going to do with heating with the well whatever it is 20 million gas boilers around the country and and the industrial heating and all the other bits and pieces um so it's been given impetus by that um but yeah as, as we said last week it's hard to pick out specific i mean there are lots of kind of individual small pilot projects and so on um proving its usage in anything from kind of refineries to ferries to trains to whatever so there's definitely things happening it's a bit early to say i think where it's going to have the most impact at the moment um but yeah i mean it's it's a it's a fascinating area i mean the best best description i kind of heard of hydrogen um or comparing hydrogen to some of the electrification um, alternatives was that certainly the electricity system is is what you'd call a stream-based system and, as, and by that it means that everything has to balance in real time um so you've got to have the same going in at one end as you've got going out the other end um whereas our fossil fuel system and the thing that hydrogen potentially brings to that is you end up with a stock based system whereby you actually i mean the other way to look at it i guess is storage so you can put the energy in something physical which can sit there as a stock item and then you can move it about or you can just leave it where it is and then use it later on so it's kind of i guess that's where the kind of sector coupling and other kind of buzzwords come in it's kind of if we're linking it with electricity and if we're looking at green hydrogen we're looking at electrolysis 
it's taking the kind of real time nature of electricity um, and being able to put that energy into something and potentially store it for a decent chunk of time or store it in a in a format that you can move about you can liquefy you can press or whatever and you can move about as a stock of energy and then use it somewhere else um now obviously in that sense it competes with with putting electricity you know, into a battery um, for example and we'll come on to that because that was one of, one of my that was my kind of third item um and so for hydrogen it's kind of picking out well what applications are what how do we segment the market and look at applications where you can do something with hydrogen that you can't do with a battery that that's going to be where hydrogen i think will take off it's not trying to be a battery it's trying to be different to a yeah. battery yeah so obviously we've spoke about twice and perhaps we'll revisit it uh, in future it will be part of the scotwind leasing round uh, next year it is already part of the round four leasing round and the dutch have also got uh, i think there's areas of the dutch uh, offshore leasing that are uh, almost semi-reserved for uh, hydrogen all the big players are uh, looking at it uh, regarding to offshore wind and hydrogen and oil and gas as well but uh, perhaps rather than labor the point perhaps it's now worth uh, picking up on one that you just mentioned there and i think uh, you mentioned that battery was one of your your three yeah yeah so uh... Whereas with hydrogen, I'm kind of hoping that this time next year, um, maybe it will be a, one of the one of my top three because there'll be something tangible to, to point to. Um, with battery, um, I mean, battery, again, it's been a whole, it's kind of the opposite end of the scale. Really. There's, there's so much happening. There's so much growth. Um, it's being applied in so many different, um, different places that in some ways it's hard to pick out a, a single um event the one i did pick out um was it's not so much an event as a kind of confirmation but um it was just this about a week ago uh, start of december that um, bloomberg they regularly do their kind of battery pricing um uh, comparisons and data and so on and they 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 announced that according to their analysis and uh, basically in the last 10 years the battery pack prices have fallen by 87 percent um so they were above they were about $1,100 per kilowatt hour back in 2010. Um, this year, they're down at about $150 per kilowatt hour in, in about three or four years' time. They expect them to be around $100 per kilowatt hour. And that's the price at which observers look at them, look at electric cars being kind of priced parity with conventional vehicles and in fact some manufacturers i think are already getting um, battery prices at below the the bloomberg number today um simply because that bloomberg numbers are kind of weighted average of the whole market um whereas obviously some manufacturers will get it get be buying at cheaper unit price than that because of big buying power some will be buying packs at higher prices so it was really those figures just sort of confirm what the market is is saying really is that the prices have dropped so quickly um and by such an enormous amount that in the space of of less than a decade we're really starting to reach the point now where things like there's a whole bunch of applications which even two or three years ago would have seemed nonsense so in the states um, replacing gas peaker power plants with solar plus storage power plants for example um <clears throat> The growth, the growth we're seeing in electric cars is one aspect, but you're seeing batteries basically change out from being 
short-term applications so in the uk we've had batteries in the grid for a while doing things like frequency response but now because the costs have come down you're starting to see batteries move into much longer applications you're seeing them move into heavier vehicles like volvo announced um a range of um <coughs> trucks using battery uh, there are ferries in norway going across fields with with battery um so it's I guess, as I say, it's not a, a single thing, but I think what you've seen this year is a real explosion of the kind of market segments that battery has gone into, and it's kind of driven by and exemplified by that data that came out just um, a week or so ago about how, how much the costs have come down in the last 10 years. And, and when I say battery, we're talking about lithium-ion battery here. Yeah, I published a piece on uh, on, on one of the sites yesterday about uh, the first world's first commercial air craft was going i think flying from vancouver on a commercial uh, basis for oh, yeah. short jobs, yeah. and that was uh, a sign of movement and of course uh, evs are part of the uh, 10 uh, pillars of uh, support for the uh, uk industrial strategy which again seems to have all party uh, supports so although you've highlighted batteries this year as a, something of a breakthrough year i think that will be sustained as well it's not a one-off and uh, perhaps it will be, we've done a, a, a kind of a podcast on comparing and contrasting hydrogen transport options with battery options. And that will certainly be one, the interaction between the two. Uh, I think I read yesterday of uh, hydrogen being used to charge batteries for EVs mm. yesterday and, and some nice synergies. So one to watch uh, uh, going forward on batteries. Anything else you'd like to add on yeah, battery at this I, stage? I, I think because what you're going to see going forwards, uh, Europe, for example, um, I mean, they just yesterday, the day before, they've got this. They're talking about a kind of green New Deal, European wide. Um, but specifically, there's been some big announcements from a, the European level on on battery, um, and basically to avoid the idea that um, Europe basically ends up being a buyer of, of battery from China, Far East, the States, and so on. Um, but instead, developing the European supply chain, and that's right the way from. It's not just building battery factories that's starting to appear um, in Europe. Tesla announced that their um, their new facility, the one in Berlin, as a company called Northvolt, has just opened a battery um, or opening announced a big investment in a big battery plant in I think Sweden or Finland, one or the other. Um, but also looking at getting further down the supply chain into the the mining aspects and the raw materials aspects, building up lithium supply in in Europe and so on as well. So, so that and that's all driven by the the price reductions that we've seen, um, the wide applicability of batteries, um, the growing importance in energy systems around not just in vehicles but within the grid stationary batteries and, and so on as well so and so yeah that that massive price reduction has really um driven not just an expansion in usage but again an expansion in, in industrial strategy and political strategy um to make sure that countries regions are not are not being left behind and are not moving from importing oil and gas to importing batteries in the future yeah similar picture we obviously we talked about the price reductions for uh Offshore wind, you mentioned them, and obviously you've got a parallel price reduction for uh, the battery yeah. sector as well. Thinking about the pinch points, uh, one thing we used to get in wind is, oh, you're using rare earths, you're going to run out of the uh, the materials, and uh, that's not really happened. Uh, I know that there are kind of innovations looking at some of the uh, the kind of uh, limited uh, supply of elements in the in the batteries. Is that, is that something that the industry is addressing? That uh, yeah, so I mean. The main, the main ones people worry about are, are cobalt. Um, now that's been the 
usage that has been being reduced um, in terms of the percentage in a in a battery. The usage overall is going up because the amount of batteries being made is, is going up. Um, but companies are, are looking to phase out uh, or vastly reduce the amount of cobalt. Um, the and the other thing with a lot of these raw materials is the I, I was I was trying to think the other day of a of an industry that has has stopped stopped growing or or um or disappeared because it didn't couldn't generate enough raw materials and I I really couldn't think of one. Um, they're not they're not rare earth elements. They're not fundamentally rare. Lithium, for example, is not fundamentally a rare element. There's plenty of it in the earth's crust. It's just that um, we've not really needed much of it before. So I, there's fundamentally not. A problem with supply. I mean, obviously, there's issues around how that how it's mined, but that's a kind of policing and and political will issue. Um, and also, the other thing that is 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 happening, uh, particularly in Korea and China, is is recycling. Um, so a lot of these raw materials will be recycled if when there's if there's value in them, uh, rather than dump the battery. It will be more economic to um, get the raw materials out of the battery uh, end of life. So. Yeah. So I think there are there are issues. There's certainly issues that can't be ignored about raw materials and about end of life and so on. But I just don't see them as insurmountable problems. Um, yeah. Anyway, we best okay. move on. To your... Okay. Yeah. I mean, we are coming from a big six uh, background. I'm quite pleased that we too have alighted upon a big six uh, to discuss today. Perhaps uh, <laughs> in the nature of circular circularity again. But it's one that uh, ties into the rest of the discussion, and that is on the round four leasing round. Uh, that is the current UK offshore leasing round. In previous years, this would have been seismic. It's hardly merited more than a footnote this year, but it is important. It is the biggest offshore leasing round in the world. It's round about uh, seven gigawatts of capacity off the UK coast. Um, to put things in perspective, I'm based in uh, in Lancashire and about 40 miles or so at the off the Crosby Beach, there are the largest turbines in the world. Uh, certainly were when they were erected not so long ago, uh, spinning off the uh, off the off the northwest coast. And if you go slightly further up the coast towards Barron Furness, you've got the largest offshore wind farm in the world, and that's spinning away. So it's here, it's now, it's in the UK. It's part of the sector deal we uh, we mentioned. But I suppose in previous years, a seven gigawatt round would have been absolutely astonishing for the renewable energy sector. They would have gasped and said, well, how can we possibly do that? But it's been subsumed now. It's, we've talked about the sector deal and the wider aspiration to, uh, to quadruple uh, by uh, 2030. And this round four is going to, um, the leasing round, is, is something of a model. So it's not been rushed. It's been done uh, with almost exemplary stakeholder Input. I've been to three or four separate meetings in, in London where the industry themselves are engaged. What bits uh, should we put in? What bits have worked less well? What's the legal? What are the other sectors saying? Uh, bits. I was pleased on some of the stuff I fed back on. Uh, I, I went to the early meetings and there was nothing on uh, on decommissioning. And I raised this, I published on it, and lo and behold, decommissioning is now included as part of the uh, of, of the leasing uh, programme, as part of the... Uh, aspects that developers are in intended or uh, expected to provide at a very early stage of the of the process. So round four is seven gigawatts. The idea is that this will be the model for future leasing rounds. And I think that is perhaps the real significance of this. It happened this year, round four. It's uh, now in train. Developers are talking now, refining projects for the crown, four areas 
have, uh, have, have prevailed, one of which is in the northwest of England, between the Irish Sea. So that will be one of the four areas perhaps uh, uh, going forward. Uh, and uh, they're now divvying up that seven gigawatts developers. Of how would we make it work? What would we put in? This should we think of innovation? And it will be fixed base. It's not really one for floating wind. The seabed depths are really just to get the, the kits in the ground and get them spinning as soon as possible. 2030 isn't so far away. Uh, but RAND4 will be a model. It'll be a template. The, the exemplary stakeholder engagement. They've got the process in place. And I think the idea, coming back to your um uh, your um, uh, CFD uh, rounds, uh, John, is that those will occur every couple of years. So rather than wait 10, 12 years for round five, it'll actually be two years. And then there'll be another one around six, perhaps, and then two years and two years to get to this quadrupling of the industry. So they've worked hard on getting the model in place. That is now replicable. They know how to do it, the Crown. The stakeholders know what to expect. There's a lot of upfront de-risking, people like the military, people like uh, the Natural England. They've already been consulted. The grid have already been brought in. So by the time the developers take on an area, it's already been significantly de-risked. So they, and they, they, they've quantified that. It's published. It's transparent. It's out there. You can download it from the, uh, the website. Unthinkable uh, a few short years uh, uh, ago. So round four, seven gigawatts available. Next year, there will be Scotwind, which will perhaps have another four or five gigawatts on top of it. And some of the figures unofficially mentioned at that uh, round four thing by developers indicate that even the quadrupling by 2030, 10 short years away, is still not the end of it. There'll be more on top of it right through to, uh, to 2050. Starts to get a bit less linear as decommissioning of existing wind farms come in. Are they too close to shore to put bigger turbines in? We'll be moving much further out. And of course, other technology trends like floating will come into perhaps round five, round six and so forth. Not really a round four of the floating turbines, but future rounds certainly will. Yeah, I guess the uh, the scale is kind of the, the headline grabbing stuff. Um, but as you say, I'd, I'd suspect when we look back, the the biggest significance of, of the process is going to be the changes in terms of de-risking um, and making it easier to implement, uh, as well as some of the issues around innovation and so on. Um, so, but yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how that, how that follows through to future rounds, as you say, with things like floating and so on. Um, but yeah, sometimes the it's kind of looking beyond the headline figures, isn't it? And looking at the, from a practical point of view and from a financial point of view, how how's the process changed to make things easier, which then, and, and would you say that's been a step change from previous? Yeah, and, and the, the buy-in of, of, of stakeholders such as the military at an early stage and the fishermen at an early stage, that's not to say that they agree with everything, but you, you might say, well, which, which areas would you be more comfortable with and which would you be absolute no-no? And that's been done at a very strategic level. And because it's been done for round four, I think there were 18 sites originally, 18 areas. And I can certainly see as, as some of the uh, the first four tranche go through, then it doesn't stop for the other areas. They'll be pecked away in the background and suddenly you find that you've got an agreement with the fishermen and you've got something that the military is comfortable with. So by the time it comes to round five and round six, because you've thought strategically from the start, uh, you've, you've nailed the later rounds as well. So I'm really quite impressed. It, 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 I think the themes are emerging from our discussion today is how almost UK PLC 
has thought on a big, big level, not really seen since perhaps the 1970s, uh, with regard to energy and uh, taking a very strategic view. This is where we're going. This has been successful. This is how we do it. And this is who we engage. And that, that's been painful for developers over the years. It was hard. People didn't have fisheries liaison officers or people to, they didn't even know to talk to stakeholder-wise. PINs has only been in place, the planning inspectorate, since about 2007, 2008. So the, the framework is in place now to sustain mm. that growth. And we talk about scalability. It seems that the framework to enable that scalability is in place. Yeah, no, I think, that, and yeah, I think that's a good place to to end and a, a good summary. I think, as you say, if you were, if we were to tie those things, those things we talked about together um, into a kind of single theme, as you say, it, it's probably been a more kind of active collaboration between industry and, and policymakers go for in terms of going forwards um given an, an imperative to to meet certain targets and meet them more quickly less of a kind of hands-off let the market sort it out approach um and much more of a well we'll let the market sort it out but we'll we'll make sure the rules that the market is playing within are kind of skewed in a way that um that delivers more kind of what we want in a, on a time frame that we want it so so yeah no, it's interesting interesting times it'd be interesting to see whether when we do this next year whether how many of those themes will have changed um and what new ones will have cropped up yeah so uh... I suppose it's uh, it's the opportune time to thank our listeners for bearing with us over the year. I think this is number 19, uh, John, this uh, podcast uh, today. And obviously, uh, if listeners do have ideas of uh, things they would like us to uh, to discuss, uh, please uh, please let us know. I know rather facetiously we did indicate that we might do one on analysing mince pies. I'm glad that uh, perhaps that one's not... Unless listeners, of course, request that as a, as a topic, it's it's not quite within the mainstream of uh, energy and clean tech and renewables and the kind of stuff that we uh, uh, discussed. But uh, we'd like to thank uh, listeners for uh, for listening. And if you do have ideas, perhaps uh, let us know and we'd be happy to uh, to do a chinwag on, uh, on, on the, your suggestion. Yeah. And, and yeah, we'll uh, look forward to more in the new year and enjoy, enjoy your holidays wherever you are. Thank you. Okay, bye.